Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through A Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Burnaby Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 125th episode of the Nauticast titled The Third Wish Part 2, an analysis of a Clash of Kings Aria 9, in which Arya has to say goodbye to her magical mentor, Jack and Agar. But at least he helps her turn Harrenhal over to some good, fat, old-fashioned Northman before he leaves, right? That's a good thing, right? Right? We'll see how that turns out in Arya 10. I'm going to say the, uh, the visions and the flames are unclear for now. That's the best I can do. It's uh, yeah, unclear being the uh, being the optimal word. And uh, please welcome back to the Nauticast. He was with us for the first half of A Clash of Kings, Are United, and he's back with us for the second half. Wolfman Zach, thanks so much for coming back, buddy. Yeah, thanks again for having me. It's fun going through this stuff with you guys and unpacking it and seeing uh, how you know it all shakes out and, and what you guys say that that gets my mind moving. So ready to ready to take it on home. Yes, and we have your 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 mustaches back as well, and it's and it's bushy glory. So I'm that's that's what I'm most excited about looking at the entire night is that bushy mustache all night long. Agreed, agreed, couldn't agree more. <laughs> and as always, this episode is brought to you by our not a small council, our hand of the king, Wolfman Zach. Who is that? Grand Maester Tim Bob, troubleshooter systems, the designer of circuit boards. Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N. Lord Travis, Master of Ships and War of the Waves. Captain of the War Galley, Nightwolf, the ship that stalks the seven seas and wielder of the Valyrian Steel Trident Summoner, the blade that brings the Deep Ones. Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers. Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws. Archmaster June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes. Ragged Michael, Ward of the North. Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone. Scarlet, the Other Red Woman and Mistress of Whispers. Lord Micah, the Quilled Lion, War of the West, Herald the Golden Tooth, Master of the Bane Fort, and the Kraken's Bane. Lord James, the Gym That Was Promised, the High Bearded Priest, Lord Jake Assistant to the Hand of the King, Lady Zena Valyrian, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dane, and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, War of the East Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Steve the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Anamis, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, the King's Cook, Noli Oli, Master of Canoli, Sir Sorcedelica, Prince Matthew of House Targaryen, Proud Soyboy of Summerhall, Defender of the Fifth Book, and Swing Dancer with Dragons, Low Energy Dent, True Master of the Banefort, and True Master of Coin, Lord Penchant for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Rainbow Commander of the Ladies and Gentle Dems, Lord Quint Esquire, Master of Absolutely Positively Not Serving as a Spy for several unnamed High Lords and Ladies in order to further the secret Blackfire style conspiracy to overthrow the oppressive Small Council. Haldiver, the Voyager for T-Wow, A.A. Braun, Dampere, Prophet of the Forsaken, and High Priest of Euron, Crozai, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Veneris of House Colgarian, the First of Her Name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Overwork, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee of the Great Game of Thrones, Portress of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Blender Paints, and Maker of Drawings, Lord Adam T., Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpion, the Red Field, Defender of the Letter of Kin, and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle, Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face, Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lady Lord Lord Peter, Lady Ashley, the dead shepherd reborn, preacher of the poor fellows, Marshall, Harrison, absent, shipwrecked in the Jade Sea, Grave, Rob Stark, the cadaver king and horror of Harrenhal, Olaf, proponent of establishing a feudal pseudo-democratic system of great councils wherein every count votes, Sir Tim, the knight who is guided by voices, Lord Nick, 
Thucydides, Lord of Plagues, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur, David Prince, Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, Lord Jean the Splendid, Master of Coin, Ward of Tampa Bay, Lady Anna, the Lovely Castellan, Pat Ironwood, the Blood Royal and Guardian of the Boneway, Lord Charles Tyrell of Highgarden, Lord Paramount of the Mander, Defender of the Marches, High Marshal of the Reach, Warden of the South, and the Heir of House Tyrell. Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf and the Pillar of Autumn, Squid Pro Quo, Master of Zorus, and our newest member of the Small Council. Everyone give a warm welcome to Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, who has promoted himself or been promoted from High Lordship to the Small Council. Thank you to all of our counselors and welcome to Joe Snow. Uh, thank you to our, all our counselors as always, and thank you especially uh, to Joe Snow. Thank you so much for moving on up. We're glad to have you. Absolutely. And our spoiler wing, as we say in every episode, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Duncan Vells, histories, interviews, the Wins Winner sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from our aforementioned new small council member, Joe Snow, who asks, Hey, fellas, so excited for your work on Clash to continue. I've been getting back into the Duncan Egg novellas between all this extra free time during the quarantine, which has inevitably led me to reflect and get sad about Summerhall. <laughs> the image and thoughts of Dunk looking on in horror as he realizes what his lifelong friend is about to unleash, dragons, can't leave my mind and imagination. If you could be given the choice, choose a chapter from George of a, about a POV of Dunk during Summerhall or get another win sample chapter. I personally would lean towards that Dunk chapter. Keep up the great work, guys. So what do you think about that, Jeff? That's a that's a fun little choice. Do you want do you want another wind sample chapter, or would you like to get to the the big reveal of Summerhall? Would George just you know say screw it and jump ahead a few Duncan Egg books and just give us that chapter? So I have to like be the the realist in here and say that the the Ooh. Summerhall yeah I know right I know uh, take it back into reality but uh, but the Summerhall chapter as far as we know at least from the Duncan Egg novella which will likely incorporate that which will be the final Duncan Egg novella has not been written as far as I know I know that George has titles for all of the Duncan Egg novellas I know that he did write a number of information a, a bit of information from that would likely be contained and be expanded upon in that final Duncan Egg novella uh, back in um, for the World of Ice and Fire. Um, but that chapter isn't written. The, the last thing we know about George's writing of Duncan Egg is that he had a, he had part of what was then known as the She Wolves of Winterfell, what wonderful, the, the She Wolves of Winterfell that was written, um, in around 2013, but he ends up abandoning it and ends up replacing it for the anthology series that he was doing for, uh, in favor of doing The Princess and the Queen, which of course is a very good, uh, good, very good series. So, so I, I think I, w- I would go with the more realistic choice of the wins sample chapter than than that chapter itself. I mean, in, in a perfect scenario, I think I would probably, yeah, sure, I'd take the POV a dunk during Summer Hall. But I think the, uh, I just, I mean, we we talked about this like I, I feel like over a year ago now about how we're just not sure how George is actually going to finish the Dunkin' Egg series at this point, right? I mean, how how is he supposed to do that and the Winds of Winter and a Dream of Spring and he's got like, what, a dozen more Dunkin' Egg novels he's going to write some? Where's he going to find the time to get that? I mean, God willing, George lives to 150 years old, but um, there is sand going through an hourglass, so just put it that way, and there's a, a lot of stuff to get done in that limited amount of time, and that goes for everyone. So, everyone, get your shit done. That's all I have to say about that. What do you think, sir? Uh, yeah, I mean, part of me thinks just like in a, in a brutal way, just, yeah, give us the Dunk chapter and then be done with Dunkin' Egg. Much as I do love yep. those stories, I just think it's it's an unrealistic side project to build us to that climax organically at this point. And, like, you know, I get why that feels bitter because the climax to A Song of Ice and Fire has also had the rug to a certain degree pulled out from underneath it by the show. So it's like there's really what part of this vast universe does he's created does the catharsis and the payoff belong to him anymore? Like, none of it. That's got to be a bad feeling. Like, 
Brienne goes on some kind of hallucinatory adventure and she gets the kind of like vision flashback into Dunk's POV and sees it all like through his eyes through some, you know, shade of the evening type situation. Brienne gets her own weirwood vision dream like like Jamie does in Storm. That works for me, whatever way you got to shoehorn it in. But no, you know, I've said before, I just like, uh, part of me wants George to just pack it in and deliver the Winds of Winter like Dickensian and just release it like a chapter a month. Just like, you know, just give it to us purely. And because, you know, give up your, you're never going to make it fit into a novel. Your story's too big at this point. Just give us a new Savile chapter every month. At this point, part of me would just embrace that. Yeah, I I've, I I like that idea, and I, and I know that folks who are like very even more connected than I am to like George's like writing process, like Adam Whitehead, Wordhead has talked about how like oh that sounds like a great idea, except for like he always like goes back and he's writing a chapter, and then he'll want to go back, he'll be writing fifty chapters down the way, and he'll have to rewrite the original chapter because I'm like. Okay, I, I, I get that, but at this point, like the, the story needs to have some sort of conclusion and sort of wrap, wrapping up. And I think, yeah, a monthly, a weekly, a weekly installment um, of, of Winds of Winter chapters would be would be great. But what would be your preference, Zach? Uh, you know, I I haven't actually gone into the Dunkin' Egg novellas myself, so um, I would say bring on right, the Winds of Winter. The more the merrier. <laughs> Who would you want at this point from Winds if you had to get a, if you got a chapter? One of the Man, uh, yeah, I mean that—that's that whole kind of cliffhanger that uh, you know that uh, there leads to a lot of speculation, right? Um, and we saw some version of, of their relationship in the show, but um, I think yeah, uh, something that takes us back to to Lady Stoneheart and that whole the whole thread. That's that's what I want, man. All day, right on. Right on. Well, so uh, uh, thank you so much. Uh, to Joe Snow for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions here in the Not A Cast podcast, you're welcome to become a Sworn Sword or higher level patron over at patreon.com slash notacastasoyaf where you can get show notes, access to the Not A Slack at our two highest tiers, monthly Fever Dream chapter-by-chapter episodes, which have been going really great lately, and a monthly A Song of Ice and Fire slash pop culture episodes like part four of The Second Coming, our analysis of the Wind of Winter chapter of The Forsaken, which is out for all poor fellow and above patrons, and we'll have the conclusion, part five of our analysis of The Forsaken, coming next month. Yes, I'm very excited for doing that. We get to talk about Old Town, Euron, Dampere. Of course, Dampere is going to make it, right? No. <laughs> no, he's fucked. You guys are killing it. It's it's an awesome series. I'm I'm ready for you guys to bring that one home and the fever dream stuff too, man. It's I haven't even read the books and following along has just been awesome. Nice little bonus. So appreciate that you guys are doing that for us. Well, Thanks, thank bro. you for saying so, it. Zach. You're the best. Yeah, that we were coming to a real. To, uh, please read Fever Dream, but I mean, we are coming up to one of the most amazing chapters in, in Fever Dream. There's the, the next two are just uh, some of the, my two of my favorite chapters. Oh, hell yeah. I think they're definitely my favorite chapters in the, in the book. So uh, it's a lot of fun. So read Fever Dream and, and come join us for our, for our month by month uh, Fever Dream chapter by chapter analysis. And one last thing about Patreon. So <laughs> if you're watching live right now, uh, tomorrow morning, or if you're listening on the release day, go back uh, a week and listen to this. We have a special announcement for everyone. We are at long last revealing the designs that our friend Mallory, aka San Rixian, did for us for t-shirts and other merchandise in our September update posts. So these designs, will uh, we'll release them. You'll get to take a look at them tomorrow on Patreon. And then there will be a series of, there'll be a voting post on September 8th, which is the day after the release day of this episode. And voting will be open for one week where you'll get to vote on the winning design. The winning design will then be colorized, finalized, that's what I'm looking for. And our sworn sword and higher patrons will receive their free t-shirt with the design on it. 
There will also apparently be additional merchandise opportunities and things like that for you guys as well. So I hope you uh, you take a look at that. And thank you so much for your patience, as I was talking about a, a, a few weeks ago. And thank you so much to, for to Mallory for, for doing these designs. They're really, really cool. I'm very excited. We're both very excited to share these with everyone. But enough about Patreon. When we last checked in with Arya, she had bantered with Hot Pie and Gendry, watched the Bloody Mummers return to Harrenhal with Northern prisoners and gave Jack and Hagar the third name, his own. Let's find out what happens after that in this synopsis of A Clash of Kings, Aria 9, Part 2. Though it's still morning, Harrenhal stirs with Vargo Hoth's arrival. Arya sees the barricade suspended from a span on a bridge. A couple of boys throw stones at the bear in his cage while others sing a strange-sounding song. Arya realizes that everyone is eating and drinking before they pass out, and she fears that Pink Eye would wonder where she is. The hungry gods will feast on blood tonight if a man would do this thing, Jacket said. Sweet girl, kind and gentle, unsay one name and say another, and cast this mad dream aside. I won't. Just so, he seemed resigned. The thing will be done, but a girl must obey. A man has no time for talk. A girl will obey, Arya said. What should I do? Well, Arya is to get some hot broth from the kitchens, and then Jackin will come and get her. So Arya rolls out and finds hot pie in the kitchens, working on loaves of bread while the rest of the kitchen staff works on a meal for the brave companions. The head chef asks what Weasel wants, and she says that my lord wants broth. The cook thinks she means Vargo Hode, and he says, eh, no, I'd rather piss in a bowl than serve him. So he orders her to leave, but she says that she has to stay until the soup is complete. So the cook tells her to go help Paya with the butter and cheese. So Arya runs over to Paya, who is mid-coitus with a bloody mummer, but Paya gets dressed in mixed butter and cheese. Paya asks for help, but Arya says, uh-uh, she needs to get to work or Vargohot will chop off Paya's feet. Yikes, Arya. And then she darts off before Paya can grab her. On the way back, she wondered why none of the captives had their hands or feet chopped off. Maybe Vargohot was afraid to make Rob angry, though he didn't seem the sort to be afraid of anyone. Hot Pie was stirring the kettles with a long wooden spoon when Arya returned to the kitchens. She grabbed up a second spoon and started to help. For a moment, she thought maybe she should tell him, but then she remembered the village and decided not to. He'd only yield again. It was only then that Arya hears Rorge's voice. She turns and sees Rorge with Jacket and Biter following behind. Rorge demands to take the soup to Arya's dismay. The cook says the soup isn't up yet, but Rorge needs it now, or he'll shove the spit up the cook's ass and put him into the soup. Biter grabs a handful of cooking rabbit to eat, showing his teeth to the cook. So Jacket and so so the cook relents, and Jack and Agar puts on a pair of gloves. He hands another pair of oven mitts to Arya, instructing her to help. Then they head up to the widow's tower. A guard there asks what the pot is, and Rorge tells him it's a pot of boiling piss, while Jack insists the prisoners need to eat as well. When the guard keeps pressing the batter, Arya tells him that it's for the prisoners, not them. So they get waved through. Once inside, Jack tells Arya to stay out of the way as they enter. There, they find eight guards with captives in the dark behind them. The guard calls out to Rorge, calling him an ugly serving wench and asking what's in the kettle. And the boys, Banner, yeah, Banner back, it's their cock and balls. The guards crowd around the food, asking if there's onions in it. Finally, one guard says they need bowls and spoons. No, you don't. 
<laughs> That's a terrible Rorge voice. No, you don't. Rorge heaved the scalding hot broth across the face, full in their faces. Jack and Agar did the same, bited through his kettles too, swinging them underarms so they spun across the dungeon, raining soup. One caught the captain in the temple as he tried to rise. He went down like a sack of sand and lay still. The rest were screaming in agony, praying or trying to crawl off. Arya pressed back against the wall as Rorge began to cut throats. Biter preferred to grab the men behind the head and under the chin and crack their necks with a single twist of his huge pale hands. Horrifying. Only one of the guards managed to get a blade out. Jacket danced away from the slash, drew his own sword, drove the man back into a corner with a flurry of blows and killed him with a thrust of the heart. The Lorathi brought the blade to Arya, still red with heart's blood and wiped it clean on the front of her shift. A girl should be bloody too. This is her work. Rorge grabs the key from the hook off the wall and unlocks the cage. The first one to pop out is Green Beret, Robot Glover, who introduces himself as Robot Glover. Jacken bows and calls him my lord. Meanwhile, the other captives strip the guards of weapons and armor, and Arya notices that the men don't seem and don't look so wounded as they did before. This of the soup! That was clever, the man Glover was saying. I did not expect that. Was it Lord Hote's idea? Rorge began to laugh. He laughed so hard that snot flew out of the hole where his nose had been. Biter sat on top of one of the dead men, holding a limp hand as he gnawed at his fingers. Yikes. Bones cracked beneath, between his teeth. Who are you, men? The crease appeared between Robert Glover's brows. You were not with Hote when he came to Lord Bolton's encampments. Are you of the brave companions? Rorge wiped the snot off his chin with the back of his hand. We are now. Jacken reintroduces himself as Jacken. Indicates Rorge and Biter and introduces them and introduces them. But when he points to Arya, Arya blurts out that no, 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 she's Weasel. She wasn't sure she could trust this man, and she especially didn't want Rorge and Biter to hear her true name. Robot Glover dismisses her, and then they get to the bloody business. When they get up from the dungeons, they find Northrend running across the ward, killing the shit out of all of the Lannisters. Rorge and Biter rushed off with Glover, but Jack and Agar knelt beside Arya. A girl does not understand? Yes, I do, Arya said, though she didn't. Not truly. The Lorathi must have seen it on her face. A goat has no loyalty. Soon a wolf banner is raised here, I think. But first a man would hear a certain name unsaid. I take back the name, Arya said. Arya wonders whether she might still have a third name, and Jacken accuses her of being greedy. So Arya agrees that the debt is paid. But now that a deed is done, a man must die. Wait, what? Yeah, Jacken's time is done. Jack and Hagar passed a hand down his face from forehead to chin, and where it went, he changed. His cheeks grew full, his eyes closer, his nose hooked. A scar appeared on his right cheek where no scar had been before. And when he shook his, his head, his long straight hair, half red and half white, dissolved away to reveal a cap of tight black curls. Arya's mouth falls open and she asks who Jacken really is and how he did that thing he did. Was that difficult? Jacken says, nah, not really, flashing an owl gold tooth smile. So Arya wants to know, well, okay then, high speed, come with Jacken across the narrow sea. I, I can't, Arya said. I have to go home, to Winterfell. Then we must part, he said, for I have duties too. He lifted her hand and pressed a small coin into her palm. Here. Jacken places an iron coin into her hand and says, It's worth something, kid. Will it buy her horse? No. Then what good is it? Ari asked. As well as what good is life? What good is death? If the day comes when you would find me again, give that coin to any man from Bravos and say these words to him. Valor Morgullus. Valor Morgullus, sorry, repeated. It wasn't hard. Her fingers closed tight over the coin. Across the yard, she could hear men dying. P please don't go, Jacken. 
Jackin is as dead as Ari, he said sadly, and I have promises to keep. Valar Magullus, Arya Stark. Jackin asks her to say it again, and Arya repeats, Valar Magullus. Jackin then bows and fades into the darkness, his dark cloak swirling very dramatically. Alone now, Arya thinks that the men who died deserve death, especially that shit knight known as Sir, in quotation marks, Amory Lorch, who had done many, many war crimes. Arya heads back to her chambers, whispers the names in her prayer one more time, and says Valor Morgulis at the end of it, falling asleep, wondering what the term meant. The next morning, Pink Eye and the others are back, except one kid who had been killed for no reason whatsoever. Lovely. Pink Eye heads out to find out what's what and returns to say that the Bloody Bombers killed most of Sir Amory's men in their beds or at table when they were drunk. But good news, Arya, the Northern Lord will be here soon, but y'all need to get back to work while you wait for him to arrive. All morning, Arya watched the Bloody Mumbers strip the dead of their valuables and drag the corpses to the flow stone yard where a pyre was laid to dispose of them. Shagwell the Fool hacked the heads off two dead knights and pranced about the castle, swinging them by the hair and making them talk. What did you die of? One head asked. Hot weasel soup, replied the other. Arya gets tasked with mopping up dried blood and everyone stares at her when she's, they think she's not looking but they don't speak to her. Arya figures Robin Glover and the other Northmen must have talked. Shaggle had probably reframed what Arya did into his one half mad jokes. And that night, the new Lord arrives. Plain faced, clean shaven, pale, strange eyes, black ring mail, pink cloak, yoga pants. The sigil was a pink man. Yeah. Pink man. A soldier orders Arya to kneel, and Vargahote steps forward, declaring that Harren Hall is his. The Lord says something, but he speaks too softly for Arya to hear what he says. Robert Glover and Sir Aenys Frey join the party, and then the leaders head over to Rorge and Biter. Arya thought they would get the fuck out from Harren Hall, but they had remained. And then Shagwell jumps on Arya. My lord, my lord, he sang, tugging at her wrist. Here's the weasel who made the soup. Let go, Arya said, wiggling out of his gasp. The Lord regarded her. Only his eyes moved. They were very pale, the color of ice. How old are you, child? Arya had to think for a moment to remember. Ten. Ten, my Lord, he reminded her. Are you fond of animals? Some kinds, my Lord. A thin smile twitched across his lips. But not lions, it would seem. Nor manticores. Arya's not sure what to say to that, so she says nothing. The Lord says they call her Weasel. Is that her actual name? Arya bites her lip, wondering at a name. Lumpy Head, Horse Face, and Arya Underfoot were names she had gone by in the past, but they wouldn't do here. Nymeria, she said. Call me Nan for short. You will call me my Lord when you speak to me, Nan, the Lord said mildly. You are too young to be a brave companion, I think, and of the wrong sex. Are you afraid of leeches, child? They're only leeches, my lord. My squire could take a lesson from you, it would seem. Frequent leechings are the secret of a long life. A man must purge himself of bad blood. You will do, I think. For so long as I remain at Hall, Nan, you shall be my cupbearer and serve me at table and in chambers. Arya knows better than to say anything, even if she would rather work the stables in order to escape. So she just says, yes, my lord. Roos Bolton then tells no one in particular to make Nan presentable, and then he orders Vargahote to attend to the banners above the gatehouse. 
Four brave companions climbed to the ramparts and hauled down the line of Lannister and Sir Amory's own black manticore. In their place, they raised the flayed man of the Dreadfort and the direwolf of Stark. And that evening, a page named Nan poured wine for Roose Bolton and Vargo Hote as they stood on the gallery watching the brave companions parade Sir Amory Lorch naked through the cap, naked through the middle ward. Sir Amory pleaded and sobbed and clung to the legs of his captors until Rorge pulled him loose and Shagwell kicked him down into the bear pit. The bear is all in black, Arya thought. Like Yorin. She filled Bruce Bolton's cup and did not spill a drop. And that is the synopsis for A Clash of Kings, Arya 9, Part 2. You know, I, I love how this chapter starts at one spot. And then by the end of it, you just kind of totally forget where you were in part one. We did this last week. I love this chapter. What does your gentleman think of it? We've got even stronger material to work with here than last week. This is some of George's most consistently surprising writing in the series. Each turn of the plot requiring the reader to scramble and reset our expectations. Arya's prison break turns out so differently than we might have thought, and then Jockin blows our mind, and then leaves, and then Roose Bolton shows up to freak everyone out anew. The consistent thread through all this is Arya's struggle to achieve control over her life, and where that need leads her. Yeah, that's exactly it, and all the, the pinballing around here at the end uh, gives the chapter a really sustained and engaging climax. Uh, you know, the writing in here is agile and crafty uh, on George's part, where uh, Arya's own confusion around the situation mirrors uh, what's going on with the reader. As we're trying to parse the consequences of what's being played out on the page, it's, you know, like I said, the first time I read it, it's right over my head. So, um, I, you know, I think it's really effective there. Uh, and we touched on it here on Boys Gone Canon last week. And uh, you've done so in <laughs> Brand's chapters when uh, George writes from the point of view of a child. He's really good at fleshing out that subtle naivete that causes the reader to have to read really closely or go back later, you know, on a reread like we're doing here uh, to kind of really fully grasp what's going on or make those connections, you know, as the chapters progress. The tiny example coming in uh, before Ruth shows up where Arya thinks uh, she should tell Shagwell to shut up when he's playing with the heads, uh, if only she wasn't so afraid of him. And in the very next sentence, she's threatening to add him to the kill list if he doesn't watch his ass. So with no one around to, to comfort her, to, to sympathize, she's got to comfort herself or, or being alive, really. Um, and, and there's a bit of a tonal shift here as well that, that mirrors Arya's journey, where in last week we were kind of talking about the familiar faces that Arya's encountering, uh, the kind of known quantities in Hot Pie and Gendry uh, that we've seen spend lots of time with Arya in her previous chapters. And then of uh, Jack and Smash for Paradigms with his sick-ass Mission Impossible mask technology and Bruce <laughs> upping the ante on the creep factor by several orders of magnitude. Uh, and Emmett likes to point out, you know, Euron smashing not only the narrative uh, of Song of Ice and Fire, but the genre itself in which the story is being told from Arthurian fantasy way to horror uh, and so between the ghosts and the vampiric roots you know we see those elements creeping into the fantasy world of castles and knights and dragons and um, part of what makes the maneuver uh, and Roos's whole thing so shocking and dare i say enticing to Arya is their lack of familiarity or analog in her life up to this point and i think you know i think george really really fleshes that out well 
I absolutely agree. I think he does a really good job of fleshing it out. And I think one of my favorite George touches, and I've talked about this before, uh, is, is how he undercuts moments of triumph and seeming catharsis with a, hey, <laughs> this doesn't feel actually all that good. I mean, Sir Army Lorch and his band of war criminals that earned their deaths many, many times over by their blatantly illegal and immoral conduct during the Rain Tarbeck Rebellion, Robert's Rebellion, and now the War of the Five Kings. We should never forget that Amory Lorch is the is a childbearer, not once, twice, over having thrown the last Lord of Tarbeck, an eight-year-old boy, down a well and then stabbed Rainey's Targaryen, a three-year-old girl, dozens of times after dragging her from bed. I, I have a three-year-old daughter. A bear feels like too good of a fate for Amory Lorch. But that catharsis I, I'm feeling at the end of this chapter... And about all of and about Amory and his soldiers getting theirs, it's undercut by this brutal line from just before we get to that conclusion of Amory Lorch being kicked into the into the bear pit, when Arya learns that Pink Eye and his charges had all survived except one person, one boy, who'd been killed in the fighting for no reason that anyone could say. The triumph of watching war criminals and child murderers get got is spoiled because another act of child murder has been committed by the liberators of Harrenhal. And boy, what a liberation, as we're going to find out in a few months' time when we get to Arya 10's, when we get to A Clash of Kings Arya 10. And that's why I agree with both you gentlemen, as we talked about last week and this week, this is the best Arya chapter in A Clash of Kings. So, to pick up where we left off last time, Arya steps back outside the oasis of the Godswood to find that Harrenhal has woken up, all a-bustle with life thanks to Vargo Hote's arrival. The plunder has all mysteriously vanished, but the bear is still there, a naked threat being made angrier by people tormenting it. All the men are drinking, which Arya thinks of as a convenient distraction, and so it is, but not for her. George's brilliant gambit here, what makes it so unexpected as we were talking about, is to nestle Arya's master plan within Roos Bolton's. The two plans intersect without ever knowing about one another. They unfold simultaneously. So even as George keeps our POV down low with Arya and her plan, we see Roos's plan go to work around the edges. As Jockin tells Arya, the hungry gods will feed on blood tonight if they go through with her plan to take over Harrenhal. And in truth, those gods would have fed on blood anyway. Jockin gives Arya one last chance to pull back. She refuses, and so he puts her to work. Go to the kitchens and help them make lots and lots of broth. (laughs) As Stephen Atwell touched on in his terrific essay on this chapter, there is a wonderful mundanity to this plan, in stark, so to speak, contrast (laughs) to Jockin's mysterious otherworldly powers. He doesn't take over Harrenhal with, like, sparks flying from his wand. He gets Arya to go back to the kitchens, where she started the chapter, and engage in the grounded, tangible tasks of servitude, They all do every day here. These are the instruments of Arya's rebellion, the sustenance of the material world, the labor and sweat demanded by their overseers. The story of A Clash of Kings is political and magical power coming together to transform into something singular, something both new and very old. Arya used her third wish with her weird wizard mentor in order to spark a political takeover of Harrenhal, waged with nothing but metal and water. Right. It's very ordinary for this character who is extraordinarily magical, as we're going to discover here momentarily. And I have to wonder, is this like a plan that Jack had conceived all along? Like, oh, yeah, I have this figured. I've been working on this for weeks and weeks. Or was it just this amazing improv? 
There are no prior mentions of Argohot's faunas for broth or soup anywhere in a Clash of Kings. Don't worry, I used a search of ice and fire to figure this out. This, you know, very key moment out. But Jackin snaps into motion like he's had this all figured out for months. And the best improv, I think, doesn't look like improv at all, I guess. Regardless, the plan as it stands rests on a few facts and assumptions. The first fact is that Amory Lorsch's garrison is spread out and not able to mass together to fight off the soup attack. This is something that Arya notes over and over again as she's talking, as she's walking through Heron Hall saying, here there used to be a thousand doors with a thousand people on it, now there's a thousand doors with a hundred people on it. There are fewer and fewer people at Heron Hall than there were back in Arya 6 and 7. An assumption that Jacken makes is that Arya will be able to order the cook around given her status as working for Pink Eye, who of course works for Amory Lorch. So the irony, in my opinion, is that the system set up by the nobility at large to force the small folk into slavish obedience to authority is now being turned against the nobility by Jacken. And I think that's the real brilliance of Jacken's plan. You know, if you come to think about it just a little bit, just apply a little bit of logic and rationality here, maybe the cook, maybe the cook should have questioned a girl giving an order for broth at midnight, realizing that the order doesn't make any fucking sense whatsoever. But the conditioning imposed by the Amory Lorches of this world ensures that Arya and Jacken can get away with it. The nobility, I guess, eat soup and itself. There's really no incentive to question it, even in an order that seems ridiculous. Well, what if it's still legit? Then you're going to be the ones in trouble for questioning it. And then, you know, that's exactly how they can hijack this little power structure and get away with it. So Arya gets sent to fetch Paya, who is fucking one of the Bloody Mummers. Again, as I said last week, A Clash of Kings Arya 9 is about the intersection between fear and desire. A primal dynamic that largely defines the emotional state of human beings. As such, the chapter foregrounds both sex and violence in a queasy, ambiguous interplay that affects how Arya will view both going forward. Arya tells Paya to fetch butter and cheese quickly, or Vargo Hote will chop off her foot. So we've gone from sex to violence that quickly, in a heartbeat, in a couple of sentences. It's not the last time Arya uses Vargo Hote as a figure of fear, a boogeyman, in this way. She threatens Gendry with mutilation to get him to leave Harrenhal with her. Certainly, Arya does not bear responsibility for what Vargo Hote actually does, which is whatever he wanted to do anyway. But this is part of the dynamic in her story where she recoils from all this violence while also beginning to understand how to use it rhetorically in order to wield power over other people. Isn't, isn't this just basically the childish equivalent of Jamie threatening the trebuchet in A Feast for Crows while telling himself he'd never use it? Mm-hmm. Even as Arya dashes off, however, George does some terrific setup work, again, around the margins, by having Arya wonder why none of the northern prisoners were mutilated like that in the way she just described. Huh. Yeah, Arya. That's weird. I wonder why that might be. <laughs> it's almost like they're not actually prisoners, but the new allies of the Bloody Mummers. It's, yeah, it's, it's perfect, but he couches it just so enough that he's playing fair with you. The information is there. But there's no way you're going to pick up on that as significant your first time through because he's keeping your attention in so many other places. Arya used the threat of Vargo as a lie to get Paya moving. And similarly, Vargo is weaving the image of imprisonment around the Northmen. And that image is going to fade before long. Arya returns to the kitchen and briefly considers letting Hot Pie in on the plan. But then remembers the village by the lake and thinks he'd only yield again. He'd blow the plan. As we saw with Gendry last week, that time in the village is a primal scene to which these kids keep returning, reforging their worldviews around it. Sadly, it has not served to bring them together so much as drive them apart. 
because it led them to very different conclusions about the world and each other. Gendry, as we saw, can't quite trust Arya, and she, in turn, feels like she can't quite trust Hot Pie. <laughs> so instead, she gets the worst companions imaginable, Rorge and Biter, the demons Jokin summoned up from hell, as she thinks of them. And they play an important role in this chapter. That role is getting Arya to doubt the righteousness of what she's doing. Rorge and Biter love killing, for killing's sake, and she is giving them more men to kill. The phrase bloody broth is repeated several times in this scene, a blunt way of communicating to the reader that this broth is about to literally spill blood. Mm-hmm. Jochen continues to make Arya complicit in the bloodletting, having her help carry the broth even though, you know, her tiny child muscles are barely useful <laughs> in such a task. Together, they hurl the broth in the faces of the guards. George dwells on this moment, emphasizing the agonized shock of their screaming and the callous brutality with which Rorge and Biter kill them, one by one. Only one even gets a chance to fight back. Jockin takes him down quickly, and then wipes his sword clean on Arya's shift. It's an important moment. This heart blood is on your hands. Jockin called Arya an evil child, and now he carries that forward. Not as condemnation, but something arguably more frightening. Initiation, baptism in blood. Welcome to the ranks of killers is what he's trying to say. No, I I think there's 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 a great religious context which Jackin is is doing this 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 effort in. And the point I was I pulled from this is Jackin wiping the blood onto Arya's shirt is that Arya is being anointed as high priest to go on before the holy of holies in Tabernacle and Second Temple Judaism. And you guys can both come at me because I'm basing this off of my Sunday school memories in Catholic and Presbyterian churches. The high priest would be consecrated as a high priest by the killing of a spotless lamb, and then the blood of the lamb would then be smeared onto his garments in order to stand in front of the almighty and holy presence of God. Here, the blood marks Arya's initiation into a priesthood of sorts as Arya will discover in a feast for crows. But the god the faceless men worship is not the red god as Jackin sort of hints at in kind of a teasing way, but rather the god of death. Arya has sacrificed Chiswick, Weiss, and now a dozen or more proximate Lannister goons to the god of death, and she stands ready to enter the ranks. Arya, as you were saying, has been initiated in blood, and Jockin will then extend the formal invitation in just a moment. As Jockin says, this counts as Arya's third wish. And unlike Chiswick and Weiss, we don't even know this guy's name. So Arya's kill list, her need for revenge on the world that doesn't make sense, that kill list doesn't shrink. And then George really shows his hand, unraveling the puzzle box of Arya 9, and in the process undercutting any triumph Arya might possibly feel about this. The Northmen file out of their cell, but none of them seem injured anymore. More to the point, none of them seem surprised to be let loose. The only thing their commander, Robert Glover, is surprised by is, This of the soup, that was clever. I did not expect that. Was it Lord Hote's idea? Wait a minute, Lord Hote? All at once, our understanding of the situation has been shattered. These men were not prisoners at all. They made a deal with Vargo Hote, who has switched sides to the Northmen in the wake of Lannister losses, and also probably because he just doesn't like Emery Lorch. There was already a plan in place to free these men, to wipe out Emery Lorch's men and take over the castle. Arya needn't have done anything at all. On first read, what stands out is the intricately crafted irony of this, the way George springs the revelation that all of Arya's efforts were for nothing. 
On reread, however, what lingers is the emotional quality, the sense of wretchedness and nihilism settling on her shoulders as a result of how this plays out. George cuts from Robert's revelation to Rorge laughing. It's a hideous sight. One of the worst people in the story reveling in his fate, his snot flying. Biter sits nearby, gnawing on bones. Arya has inadvertently saved their lives again. That's the difference between her doing nothing and her doing this unnecessary plan. That's what she contributed to. Robert wonders at their presence. They were members of the Brave Companions. Uh, wait, are they now? They sure are, says Rorge. They can turn cloaks again, finding new patrons to support their atrocities, just as with the Bloody Mummers themselves. This is what Arya has done. If she didn't come up with this plan and un unwittingly enlist them, they would have been killed with the rest of Amory Lorch's men. Arya thought she was changing the world for the better, but the practical effect of her actions was that the worst people in Westeros get to keep going. Meddling in both magical and political power with the best of intentions has led her to ruin, and not only that, but to irrelevance and neglect from the very forces she was counting on to save her. Arya did all this for Robert Glover, to free someone she regarded as practically kin by comparison to the other people around her. But she doesn't want to reveal her identity to him now because she would also be revealing it to Rorge and Biter, the men she didn't want there, the men she has once more saved. So she sticks with Weasel, the name she wanted to leave behind forever. And Robert Glover dismisses her on that basis like she's not even there even though she just helped save him. He's a well-intentioned man, as we see whenever he pops up in the series, but he bears the prejudices of his class. We've been talking about the differences in worldview between Arya and her friends who were raised as small folk, but in the Beholder's eyes, in Robert Glover's eyes in this moment, with that name Weasel, she's one of them. She's a non-person, and she has not escaped that for all her efforts here. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And this is also not the last time that Arya will bear witness to a surprise massacre. Because it's here that George and Rhys Bolton do a dry run for the Red Wedding, just one book hence. We have ostensible allies coming into a castle and feasting together, everyone getting drunk. But it's all a ruse for Amory Lorch's men to let down their guard before the Bloody Bummers and their captive, Northmen and Freys, come that, to come with hidden axe and sword. I mean, you were bringing up this, this uh, earlier about the cook statement that the bloody broth is not bloody ready. And Senator Clegane will tell Arya that he's hoping to make it to the twins in time for her uncle's bloody wedding come a storm of swords. The difference here is that it's 100 Lannister goons who got got instead of thousands of Northmen who were murdered at the twins. Also, there's no sense that guest right was extended to this this party, but that's a, that's beside the point. Now, it's not entirely clear who came up with the plan of getting everyone good and drunk and then killing them, as it's only stated that Vargo Hote approached Roose Bolton's camp. There is one hint that it might have been Vargo Hote's idea, as Robert Glover asked if the soup was Vargo's idea. That might imply that it was Vargo rather than Roose who came up with the plan to infiltrate Harrenhal, get the Lannisters drunk, and kill them all from within the castle. But Roose, yeah, he was watching, observing, seeing if this plan would work. Now, as we talked about in Tyrion 8 from A Game of Thrones and Arya 7 from A Clash of Kings, Roos wasn't planning the Red Wedding yet. The Starks were winning, the Lancers were losing, and Roos Bolton wasn't planning on switching sides to the losing side. That's going to come later. Beyond that, Tywin hadn't entered King's Landing yet, and he wasn't sending Burrs to Harrenhal to work out an arrangement with Roos Bolton and Walter Frey. That is, we're going to talk about in Arya 10 is going to be occurring there. Regardless of Roos still being a Stark loyalist, 
here. When the plan did work out, you get the sense that Roos kind of said, huh, that's interesting, tucked it into his pocket for a later date. Come storm, Roos Bolton took Varkahot's plan to take Hall and remixed it to put a stake or sword through the heart of Rob Stark's cause. Yeah, I like that a lot. Uh, you know, the the tying back into Arya's lack of direct familiarity with Roos and, and his whole thing that he does and her degrees of removal from the politics at hand that we've been talking about here. Um, and, you know, to that end, it kind of makes the red wedding planning that much more insidious if she's sitting there filling his cup while he's starting to turn the gears in his head that mm-hmm. ends up with her brother being betrayed and stabbed through the heart manifesting her mother's primal exhausted grief through those thoughts and actions uh grief so strong it can't even be killed so uh this kind of magical thinking is something i'm going to explore here in a little bit but i really like that george plays with these different levels of strategy and scheming between the lines of the sudden and bloody action there's so many short-term and, and long-term story beats and story shapes at work here. The reader is working hard just to keep up with what's going on. And as, as Zach was saying earlier, George slightly mirrors that process with Arya herself. She is a little too young, too over her head, and also just too stressed to pick up on what is happening around and through her. It is only Jockin who is left to explain things to her, because everyone else immediately moved on to play their roles in a story bigger than her. Jockin puts everything in animal terms, as McCall said in Arya 8. His perspective is detached. Like a god, he's viewing man's affairs from the outside, like we might watch a nature documentary. The goat has no loyalty, he says, and has turned on the lions. Soon a wolf banner will be raised here instead. Your army, your pack, is coming in force. The kill list filled that hole inside the sense of justice and meaning that died with her father. And then Jockin made her feel more than a mouse, bringing that kill list to life, allowing her to strike back and retake control. And now, that journey appears to be over. The wolves have come again. Arya is free of her tormentors and does not need Jockin Hagar anymore. All part of the hero's journey, right? The mentor prepares you and then lets you go. But Arya still asks for that third death back. Uh, she is greedy, as Jockin says, trying to extend the deal as long as she can. It's not out of bloodthirst that Arya makes this request, it's out of a desire to feel in control of her own life. She thought she had done so with Weasel Soup, but that spun out of her control and then turned out to be redundant. Without Jockin, she has no power. But when Jockin tells her that the debt has been paid, with blood, several times over, well, she understands. She makes her peace, her deal with death, the loop is closed. Arya is never going to be able to just snap out of what a violent world has made of her, but she proves here that she does not love violence itself. Rather, she grew accustomed to its taste because it was the closest she could find to the taste of justice. She had three wishes to make justice happen. She tried her best, but this is still a fallen and forsaken world around her. Arya was clever enough to manipulate Jockin into bending the rules of the three-wish structure. But now her cleverness and luck have run out. Now, as she says, she was just a mouse again, having glimpsed the structure of power, taken part in it, and been spat out the other side. And it is in this moment 
that Jaqen Hagar changes Arya's understanding of that structure of power, permanently blowing her little mind. A strange smile touches his lips. He passes his hand over his face, and his flesh ripples and swells and transforms, magic reshaping his body. Nothing could possibly have prepared Arya for this, save old Nan's stories, maybe, made real in a way she still never could have seen coming. She is too astonished to even be afraid, wonder briefly overtaking terror, the giddy dizziness of having one's worldview smashed to pieces. The reader feels the same way. Even in the middle of a very busy, consequential chapter, trying to keep up with the plot and Arya's unfolding character arc, Jochen changing his face brings everything to a halt to absorb the implications. We have heard the phrase, faceless man, bandied about in King's Landing politics, but with no exposition about who they are beyond very expensive assassins. We have seen plenty of hints in these Arya chapters that there is something strange, even sorceress, about Jock and Hagar, but that's all they were. Hints, signs, inferences. And now, we get the proof of concept. A miracle in the daylight. A seismic, instantaneous transformation of matter by no means but one's will. This is one of the big magical moments in A Clash of Kings, in which the age of wonder and terror coinciding with the Game of Thrones makes itself known. It's the climax of the magical aspect of Arya's storyline in this book, as with Bran opening his third eye, or Danny wandering the House of the Undying. It's the spotlight scene for her magical mentor figure, his equivalent of Melisandre birthing a deadly shadow beneath Storm's End. So you can, you can clearly map this moment onto other moments in the book. It's part of the overall structural ramp-up of the book going into its third act. But as with those other magical moments in A Clash of Kings, it also bears characteristics unique to this storyline, this setting and these characters. Once Bran opens his third eye, his commitment to Jojen's agenda is made ironclad, and Jojen follows that path unflinchingly, even unto his own death. Once Melisandre has seduced Stannis, literally and figuratively, and birthed shadows, the die is cast that will lead them both to the sacrifice of Shireen. The warlocks pursue Danny until running afoul of Euron anyway, and Quaithe pops in to check on Danny throughout a storm of swords and a dance with dragons. So these are now they've become consistent built-in parts of the central character's story. In this storyline, however, the moment of truth with the magical mentor works differently. Jaqen performs this miracle, and Arya's desire wins out over fear. All she wants in that moment is to be able to change her face. And can you blame her? What makes this moment so poignant is that already Arya has already been changing faces. It's her main survival strategy. From the start of the book, she's been disguising herself. Pretending to be a boy, pretending to be lowborn, pretending not to be angry at everything. She's been Arya, she's been Weasel, and she's always been Arya Stark underneath those other faces. Jockin makes the comparison explicit, saying Jockin is as dead as Ari. These are the people we were, not the people we are. And it's not just her that works this way, it's everyone. The Bloody Mummers just changed faces to become Northmen. Rorge and Biter changed faces to join them. All Jockin has done is make the metaphor literal. He can change his actual, physical face, not just change his attitude and personality as needed. 
And Arya sees the possibilities of that, the relief from suffering. Her connections to her old identity keep bringing her pain. Her memories of family and home just make her feel the loss all the keener. Crying out Winterfell turned out to be a bad thing. Even freeing the Northmen didn't bring her old life back. At some level, she's wondering if she might be better off leaving it all behind. If she can't get it back no matter how she tries, why keep hurting herself? Maybe it would be better to drift in the void like Jalkin, always smelling like soap in his eerily perfect pocket universes, serving all gods and so none. We, of course, don't want that for Arya. We want her back with the pack. Harrenhal itself is a cautionary tale for climbing the fiery ladder. You lose your soul. But we feel the temptation, which is why this is such a good character arc. Arya will eventually follow that temptation in Feast and Dance, but not here, which is what separates this storyline from the rest in The Clash of Kings. Arya's magical and political paths are diverging sprung loose from one another as a result of her intervening on the wider stage of Harrenhal. So when Jochen asks her to come with him, far and away across the narrow sea, she says no. She still just wants to go home to Winterfell. And Jochen doesn't even put up a fight. He just pieces out. <laughs> this is what makes him so different from all those other magical mentors. He lets her go. He doesn't have the obsessive, all-consuming focus on the Messiah that defines Jojen and Melisandre and presumably Quaithe. <laughs> Jochen didn't come here for her. As he says, he has other duties, and she remains underfoot. Absolutely. And what I like here is that George is putting his own take on several substeps in this departure part of Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, as you were talking about before about Joseph Campbell. The departure is broken down into five substages known as the call to adventure, refusal of the call, supernatural aid, the crossing of the first threshold, and belly of the whale. Here we see in microcosm the first three stages, but George remixes the order of things. In George's telling, it goes supernatural aid, the call to adventure, refusal of the call. Jacken provides supernatural aid in being the magic murder genie while using ordinary means of actually attaining uh, the, the skill set of killing Weiss, Chiswick, and a slew of guards guarding the Northmen. Then Jacken calls Arya to come with him across the narrow sea to learn the skill of changing his face. Arya then refuses this call as her first thought is returning to Winterfell and reuniting with her family. The belly of the, the other two stages, the belly of the will and the crossing of the first threshold, come quite literally at the end of a Clash King's Arya 10 when Arya makes her first deliberate kill and walks out of Harrenhal as we'll cover here in a few months' time. Now, George has talked a little bit about Joseph Campbell's work, stating, well, I'm certainly familiar with Joseph Campbell, but no, consciously, I've not included a lot of that. It's kind of unclear to me whether Arya 9 is one of those spare moments where George consciously emulated Joseph Campbell's work, but even if it wasn't the conscious attempt to replicate the hero's journey, a la George Lucas in the original Star Wars trilogy, it's impossible not to inadvertently write Campbell into the into any story. That's one of those quotes from George, I gotta say, like where he says, oh, I didn't expect people to romanticize Sandor, right? Look at him askance and go, really? <laughs> Dude, you have to know how much of this stuff, like the many-faced God, just to pick on Arya's storyline, like the many-faced God is just a literalization of everything Campbell was writing about. But, you know, it's Campbell was, of course, drawing from a lot of different sources. George was in large part just drawing from the same sources. So I think it's more just kind of parallel work. And as, as you said, Jeff... This stuff is just kind of leached into pop culture so strongly. It's like trying to avoid Lovecraft that we were talking about in the recent Forsaken episode. You, you kind of can't mm -hmm. if you're going to be working within a certain genre. You're either cleaving to or from that model. And I think that's exactly what George is doing here. Mm -hmm. 
And it, so Jockin just becomes another adult with better things to do. Like the how, like the, how there was already a plan to take over Harrenhal, being pitched right over Arya's head. Jockin is going to walk away from her, like Yorin, like Ned. And while he doesn't die like they did, he also was never really alive like they were. He leaves her not with a grand eschatological arc, but with a simple, humble coin. This is the key to your future. It is not for the buying of horses, he says. So Arya doesn't understand what good it is, because she wants horses, tangible physical power like the flower that was all over Hot Pie's arms. Jockin says she might as well ask what good is life, what good is death. The coin belongs to that realm, the philosophical, the metaphysical. It's the coin from No Country for Old Men, basically, a symbol of chance and fate intersecting, intertwining, the individual caught among them. The end result is always death. And that's the other totem Jockin leaves behind, Phalar Morghulis. It's something else pitched over Arya's head. A language she can't understand, like she couldn't understand Roos's plan as it unfolded around her. But the deeper concept is something she knows all too well by this point. All men must die. A stranger walks away from her, wearing Jockin's clothes. She never knew him at all. And he was ultimately only the stranger, the god of death. Arya is left alone with corpses of the men she helped kill. They deserve to die, she tells herself. She has reason to think that. But that doesn't change the fact that she's alone with them, with no one living to love or be loved by. Such are the wages of the kill list, the three wishes, the fiery ladder, and the Game of Thrones alike. This is what Hall always leaves you with. Arya is marked by death, drowning in corpses. For all her magical mentor's pretensions to mastery, what he ultimately did was draw her deeper into this mass grave. She says it herself. I am the ghost in Harrenhal. Yep, and to be a ghost, you gotta die. As powerful as mm-hmm. it is, as spooky as it is, it means you've joined the corpses and you haven't you haven't really won after all at some level. And again, that's some, that's a dynamic we're gonna be touching on much more when uh, when we get to Arya Ten. So, as Jeff noted earlier, everyone in Arya's little work group makes it back to their beds alive except for one boy, who had been killed for no reason at all. Such are the wages of Arya's coup, striking back in force against her oppressors, only to find she has done nothing but keep the wheel turning. As for the living, they are sentenced to sweat for the new lord, as they were for the old. For Arya of House Stark, it matters a great deal who holds Harrenhal. For the laborers who maintain the place, it doesn't really matter at all. As Gendry said, they're just gonna keep working, regardless. Arya has to watch them strip and burn the bodies, and she has to mop up the blood. Her face is shoved in the brutality of her ostensibly good works. What has changed is how Arya herself is perceived by the people around her, just like how Jockin said it was her true name that mattered, not his. Pink Eye regards her differently. Everyone seems to be staring and whispering. Worst of all, Shagwell does a gruesome puppet show with some knights' heads, in which he says they died of weasel soup. I can't imagine that Arya can see a severed head without thinking of Ned and having some level of PTSD triggered or ingrained there. And, you know, her her relationship with Ned, it's always at the margins. She never thinks directly, 
you know, like you guys talked about uh, his stories of Herod Hall or anything like that. But um, these kinds of, you know, aspects of her relationship with him were always kind of hovering around her story all the way through. Yeah. And it's also kind of why you get the sense of why she's considering putting Shagwell on her on her death list. And that kind of makes sense, given that a number of the folks in the death list are all related to Ned Stark's death at the end of A Game of Thrones. And thinking something, uh, thinking about Shagwell, we're getting a taste of this new batch of brutality and horror, which is going to enfold Hell under this new management. Shagwell kind of reads as George's take of the killer clown stock character we see in horror, perhaps seen in best in Stephen King's It. Like almost everyone in Harrenhal, Shagwell is not supernatural per se, but his appearance, his actions speak to the type of monster which arises from dark fairy tale. But he also seems based on real world people like John Wayne Gacy, the serial killer, rapist and torturer who killed over 33 people. Everywhere that we see Shagwell in the story, he's doing some new form of shittery, kicking Jamie to the ground in a storm of swords so Zolo can hack off his hand, attempting to rape Brienne, murdering Nimble Dip nimple dick crab and only finally getting Brienne when he tries to murder Brienne as well. Shagwell serves as, I, I think, another beat on George's layered critique of war. In a Westeros, without war, Shagwell would have never arrived as a sellsword with the Brave Companions. But now that he's here, he acts with sociopathic impunity, unpunished by the Tywins and Roose Boltons of the world because he serves their purpose. He brings fear. Where other people shrink away at the brutal slaughter that's just unfolded, and even Arya is forced to rationalize all the death. Oh, they deserved it, and everything like that. You can tell it's definitely rationalization. Shagwell is laughing, swinging severed heads by the hair, making them talk. You can almost make a metaphor of what Shagwell does is similar to what the White Walkers do in forcing the dead to do their will. And coming off the end of The Second Coming Part 4, our full analysis of The Windsman of the Forsaken, Shagwell works as the prologue to Euron and the woman with white fire hands laughing from the Iron Throne as horrors unfold below them. Shagwell is just wretched, man, and he's just a wretched individual and character, and he's not alone among the evil characters that comprise the Brave Companions. And now these people are spreading her story. Because even though Robert Glover in the moment lacked interest in her as an individual, seemingly a peasant girl... Seems like he couldn't resist telling a good story. All Arya can think to do about this is add Shagwell to her list. Arya clings to her list, even after her three wishes are up, even after she's run out of ways to, you know, make her list happen. (laughs) But what else does she have? Everything has changed, yet at the same time, nothing has changed. And it it is in that context that Roose Bolton arrives (laughs) to take charge of Harrenhal. We have met him before, back in Bran and Catelyn's chapters in Book 1 when Rob was getting his army together. George took time to establish in those chapters that Roose is creepy, with his stares and soft voice. But this chapter, along with Arya 10, is really the coming out party for perhaps the fan-favorite villain in A Song of Ice and Fire, <laughs> the Leech Lord of the Dreadfort. In his own way, he's a nowhere man, like Jockin, as hard to define as he is to ignore. They have similar color schemes, red and white versus pink and pale. George describes Roos as neither handsome nor ugly, neither thin nor fat, neither tall nor short. This could make Roos unmemorable in our mind's eye, but it's quite the opposite. Every reader of A Song of Ice and Fire remembers Roos the noose. That's because of the signature tone that defines him, the chill in the room that seems to accompany him like the White Walkers an all-encompassing aura of dread, which is only appropriate given the name of his castle, the wonderfully unsubtle Dreadfort. (laughs) 
What makes Roos so terrifying is not easy to pin down, which is by design. He is a man of contrasts, languid in his effect, but monstrous in his works, intricate in his planning, yet evanescent in his motivations and emotions. What drives Roos Bolton? This is both a simple and complex question. On the one hand, his drives are clear. He loves domination in every respect, politically, sexually, even physically over himself via leeching. Roos is the embodiment of control. His scenes wield a sick fascination over the reader because we are watching a barely restrained beast. At any moment, we know he could snap. George does an incredible job conveying this constant tension to both the reader and other characters. What's lurking behind those misty eyes? What is he barely keeping at bay with those leeches? As rereaders, we know the answer. Ramsay. Ramsay is Roos minus restraint, just like how Tyrion is Tywin minus restraint. And that's why those relationships end precisely the same way. The unfettered id inevitably turns resentfully on the controlling superego. Fictional families don't come much more Freudian than the Lannisters and the Boltons. Roos lets loose exactly once. The Red Wedding. That's what's waiting for us. That's his primal driving desire, what he really looks like inside. Up until that point, he's playing along with a society that will not allow him to unleash his dark dreams until he has amassed enough power to get away with it. Roos is more restrained than Ramsay, not in that he refrains from committing atrocities, he still does, but in that he always keeps an eye on his audience. He always keeps in mind how this is going to play with the Starks. First Rickard, then Ned, now Rob. He's always thinking about how to keep the information from them and how to filter what they do hear about. As such, Roos's mask goes very deep. And that's what makes him such a complex and such a popular character. Despite that simple power drive, the execution of his character leaves us with all these ambiguities to discuss. Take this scene, for example. If I just tell you what happens, Roos sounds like a pretty okay guy. He's the hero of this situation, in fact. Roos calls Arya over. He teases her gently about weasel soup. He asks her true name. He compliments her bravery. He mildly reminds her about her manners. And then he takes her under his wing as his new cupbearer. Well, he certainly sounds better than a lot of these, like, outwardly, like, rude and angry and cruel types, right? Well... It's only in the execution, the lived experience of standing in front of Roos Bolton, that things get very weird and very frightening. <laughs> only Roos's eyes move. Pale eyes, unnaturally pale, the color of ice. Roos is not literally a White Walker, that's more Euron's arc, but he is meant to evoke their presence. He's not a blustering brute like Rorge, no, he's more detached. Roos's thin smile and whispered words don't reassure Arya, even though he is objectively praising her work and improving her situation. There's something off, as though Roos is something profoundly inhuman only playing at being a man. Thus, Roos emerges as the literary heir to Damon Julian, the vampiric villain of George's 1982 novel Fever Dream we have been covering for patrons, described as... A tall, handsome animal in Burgundy. 
and there was nothing the least bit human about it. In the context of Fever Dream, the aim of this dynamic is to impress upon the audience how the genteel cultured surface of old Europe, embodied by the vampires in that novel, papered over hideous violence rooted in greed, the original sin that took root and spread in the new world via slavery. In the context of A Song of Ice and Fire, Roos represents how far the nobility can go in Westeros before someone intervenes. He, he always just goes up just against that border. As they say in A Dance with Dragons, when they're, you know, want, they want to rebel against Ramsay, but they say, a man can deal with Roos. Hmm. He has made it so. That reputation is his triumph and the condemnation of the society that has allowed him to prosper. They deem this man acceptable. And this is because he wields power over information, of course. No one else quite knows what he's actually up to. But it's also because the men of his class are just not inclined to respond to the suffering he creates unless it disturbs their customs, their rights, their sleep. Ramsay bugs them. Roos knows better. He does know better. And Roos, like Walter Frey, has a significant army that he can bring to bear on the battlefield. And that's similar to the phrase in that Roos works as a necessary evil. The size of Bolton's sworn men who could show up for any battlefield is quite large. As we find out sort of in A Dance with Dragons, Roos has upwards of 4,000 Bolton bannermen on the field, making him second only to the Manorlees and the numbers of Northmen soldiers he can bring to a fight. Roos Bolton may scare Rob, as he says in Brand 6 from A Game of Thrones. He may have weird pale eyes, and he may come from a castle called the Dreadfort, but in war, you need those men at your side, right? Well, I mean, given the Roos's conduct in the War of the Five Kings, I'd say a very definitive no, but the numbers are the numbers. And this to me feels like a commentary on George's part about the compromises that compromises with evil that leaders feel that they have to make. Ned provides, I think, the counterpoint to this thing that some bannermen are not worth having or keeping. And to be fair, Roos is very clever, very clever. To be fair, Roos is very clever to cover up his tracks and not let on that he probably tried to get as many loyal Northmen killed at the Green Fork. He's also very clever as well to ensure that his crimes, as you were pointing out, Emmett, don't actually hinder or impugn the nobility. It allows himself to immunize himself from the potential arrests that awaited people like the Jorah Mormons of this world that Ned, Ned Stark was willing to come to Bear Island to arrest for his brushing up against the actual illegalities of Westeros. His crimes are ones that we never see, and that makes him so dangerous and so unexpected in some places that when we come up to the Red Wedding, not until he stabs Rob Stark through the heart do we actually know that he is the villain of the story. That's a great comparison to Jorah Mormont. Like, that's exactly what Roos would never permit to happen to himself. Like, he must have witnessed that and went, what, what a fool, Jorah Mormont, that you, <laughs> you let word get to Ned about this. I would never permit that to happen if I enslaved someone. I would never let word get to Winterfell about that. I have things under control here. We don't operate like that in the mm-hmm. Dreadfort lands, no sir. Roos is a polite surface ladled over a mass grave. Exposing how superficial those norms are. Tywin functions in a similar way. No wonder they get along. Tywin, however, is rooted in Greek and Shakespearean villains. And so he is made legible on a human level. You come to understand him even if you don't justify his actions. Roos, as a character, is rooted in horror. Southern Gothic horror as much as vampire stories. And so he remains fundamentally illegible in terms of his deeper currents beyond domination. He just is. 
It's so chilling how casually he enforces the class hierarchy on Arya in this scene, only mildly reminding her that she's to call him my lord and saying, oh, you'll do, oh, you'll do. The mildness is what terrifies us. We see from Roose's actions, starting in this chapter, that he is capable of far worse. So when he holds back, we feel no lasting relief. We feel that we have barely dodged a bullet, and more will be coming soon. Arya is made presentable, as Roos says, taught to pour wine without spilling a drop. Everything is in its right place. But beneath that placid surface seethes nameless fear. Jaws perpetually trembling about you, held back by restraints that are permanently on the verge of snapping. That is life under Roos Bolton. The door through which Arya walks gladly, because it means the downfall of her hated foes, the Lannisters. Sir Amory Lorch is dragged, naked and sobbing, through the castle before being tossed into the bear pit in view of his previous allies. Now, of course, Amory is the absolute worst. Much as I'm inclined against our modern systems of capital punishment, in this context, a swift execution by the commander on the scene would be the most just resolution. But this? Dragging him through the castle as he screams and throwing him to a bear? It's hard to call this justice because the cause being served here is not redress for the many crimes of Amory Lorch. The cause being served here is the dominion of Roose Bolton and the bloodlust of Vargo Hout and his brave companions. Is justice really being done here? <sighs> Probably not. I mean, someone getting tossed into a bear pit in order to be ripped to pieces by bears is cruel and unusual under any circumstances. And I was thinking that the casual cruelty of the bloody mummers in throwing rocks at the bear that might have been used to stir up the rage in, in the bear itself to attack a human being, as bears very rarely attack humans unless they're mistreated or threatened by humans. Vargahot brought that bear into Harrenhal in order to kill a man in the most brutal way possible. So yeah, I guess it's not justified. But I really do feel the emotions Arya's experiencing over Amory's death. I would not spill a drop in the drink for Roose Bolton either. So uh, this is where I want to talk about the argument that can be made where Arya manifests Sir Amory's death uh, through magical thinking, which is a notion ascribed to you by people like Aleister Crowley, uh, sort of a dark magic where one's thoughts, ideas, wishes, actions can influence the course of events in the physical world, often achieved through prayer, rituals, mantras, things that sound familiar to readers of these chapters. Um, there's always some kind of like, not always, but there's often a uh, satanic element or even extraterrestrial, um, not magic in like, I will now pull a Zorse out of this hat. But magic is in three monkey paw wishes from a murder genie. Uh, and if you want to go down that rabbit hole, it can go as far as you really want to follow it. Did magical thinking on the part of Daenerys allow her dragon eggs to hatch? She hatches them during a funeral pyre that included a ritual sacrifice in the form of Miri Mazder while asking, is it so far from madness to wisdom? Is that how Melisandre was able to conjure and birth a shadow baby? Melisandre and Stannis consciously or unconsciously came together to create this monster and therefore willed it into existence. It has real-world ramifications. We see Stannis weak and drained after the experience. He coupled with Melisandre and gave an essence of himself in order to manifest his hopes and desires, namely defeating his enemies, strengthening his military positioning, and solidifying his attempt to win the game of 
drones, is magical thinking, spiritual reality behind Thoreau's prayers that bring back Barrick time after time. In the hit HBO TV show that these tie-in novels are based upon, Thoreau's perspective is fleshed out a bit more explicitly. I knelt beside his cold body and said the old words, not because I believed in them, but he was my friend and he was dead. And they were the only words I knew. And for the first time in my life, the Lord replied. Beric was brought back because Thoros wanted him back. He was tuned into the frequency through his grief that gave real power to his formerly empty prayers. And we'll get to that scene in a couple more years, maybe. But here now in Aaron Hall, Amory Lorch is on Arya's list for the death of Yorin. And the repetition of her kill list, like a prayer, conjured her death angel. Whispering Amory's name to the darkness enough times could have manifested the magical circumstances that brought Jack and Vargo along to fulfill the desire to see Amory punished. And punished he is. And despite the execution of his execution, Arya is still satisfied in crossing that name off her list. Arya still thinks it's righteous. As she says, the bear is black like Yorin. This is payback for Yorin's death. And yeah, there's that aspect where she's, it's like a manifestation of her deepest desires. But it's being carried out by men who don't give a shit about Yorin's death, about anything he stood for. Some of these men have been just fine carrying out atrocities in the Lannister name. Have things really gotten better? And that same question applies to the big picture politics. On first read, this seems like George taking away from the Starks with one hand and giving unto them with the other. Tyrion will make this explicit in his next chapter when he thinks that the the gods have taken Winterfell away from the Starks and given unto them Harrenhal. What a dismal exchange is how he puts it. In truth, it's even worse than Tyrion makes it appear. Roos taking Harrenhal fits Edmure's plan to trap Tywin, but Tywin escapes that trap by barging down the Blackwater with the Tyrells to bring down Stannis at King's Landing. Meanwhile, on reread, we know that Roos begins actively working against the Starks and for the Lannisters after the Battle of Blackwater. That simply would not be possible without a base of operations wherein Roos wields total control over the means of communication. In other words, if Roos does not take Harrenhal and remains in the field, there's a big obstacle in the way of the Red Wedding. Not an insurmountable one, because Tywin can still contact the Freys, and so can Roos. They can form like a, you know, a telephone game of information. But the point is how much the fall of Harrenhal winds up backfiring on every possible level. And what that says about its place in Arya's story. The only real improvement is the fire inside Arya's heart. A name off her list. And that is very meaningful to her, but only to her. And only for now. By the time we check in with Arya again after the Battle of Blackwater, we will see that things are just as bad, if not worse, inside the walls of Harrenhal now. This castle and the realm it stands in for seems cursed. And there is no way for magic to set it all to rights. Yeah, uh... I love that, man. <laughs> like, it, it just kind of captures the essence of the whole thing. So I uh, really well put there. And, uh, you know, Jeff touched on it a little bit last week and it kind of stuck with me. Uh, the, the magic and the curse of hair and all. And, you know, we can see that it, it's magical and cursed, right? Uh, but just think of the, the parade of men that have laid claim to it in some form or another, even up to just this point in the story. Tywin Lannister, Jenna Slint, 
Jeff's good friend, Amory Larch, Varga Hout, and Ruth Bolton. Some of the worst people in the entire narrative, war criminals left and right. And like you said, just monsters, you know, lurking right under the surface. So it follows that fucked up things will follow these fucked up people through this what fucked up cast. It's, it's that refracting that, that prism, you know, the magic and the curse are real, but they go through the prism of humanity or lack thereof uh, when they try to wield or control it. And I just, I think it's a great encapsulation of that. It, it truly is. This is this is definitely feeding into the narrative of the tragedy of the, of the Stark cause, starting from Ned, flowing through Rob Stark here in Heron Hall. We get a moment of seeming triumph, which of course gets turned around to this moment of complete tragedy when we, and war crime when we get to the to the Red Wedding itself. And I think that takes us nicely into our foreshadowing and groundwork portion of this episode. So this will, of course, not be the last we see of that bear that the Bloody Brummers bring in that eats Amory Lorch. The Bloody Mummers toss Brienne into that bear pit in a storm of swords, and Jamie saves her life at cost of the bears. And I always felt bad for that bear. Obviously, the main yeah. takeaway is, like, relief that Brienne is okay. But, like, the bear didn't do anything to, you know, deserve that fate. It was just being being uh, tormented and tortured onward by, by the Mummers. The bear was just following its natural state of things, and the Bloody Mummers are acting against the natural state of humans, right, in killing people in the worst possible way and, and turning this bear in, against human beings. And in, along that same lines, Emery Lorch getting thrown into the bear pit comes back in Jamie's sixth chapter in Storm of Swords when Jamie jumps down into the bear pit to save Brienne and finds a jawbone with green flesh and crawling with maggots and uses it in vain to try and ward off the bear. And this jawbone is most likely all that remains of the war criminal Amory Lorch. Again, that kind of in my mind, so receives a little bit of foreshadowing for what happens with Tywin Lannister and mm. that Amory Lorch's true self is being revealed here as just crawling with maggots, green flesh rotting. What this guy is being, the metaphor is being brought to life, so to speak, when we get to Jamie's sixth chapter in A Storm of Swords. Worms, worms await you, Amory. That's definitely mm. what we're seeing here. So the iron coin that Arya receives from Jockin turns out to be pretty important. It will be used in Arya's final A Clash of Kings chapter when she offers it to a guard, drops it, or so it seems, and then slits his throat when he leans down in order to escape Harrenhal. The coin will also seemingly mark her out as a faceless man, and she'll give this coin to Captain Ternicio Terrace, who will assume that Arya is a faceless man and take her to Bravos at the end of A Storm of Swords and the start of A Feast for Crows. So this this coin is it's, it's a multiple kind of things being set up and foreshadowed here for Arya. Right. And it, it kind of speaks also to this this whole idea of what the coin actually represents in the saying of the faceless men, because the idea, the phrase Valor Morgulis is left as a mystery phrase throughout this chapter. And while George does drop numerous hints the, in this chapter, what the phrase means, he is, for instance, couples, men and deaths together in several paragraphs surrounding Arya and Jockin's use of the phrase. He's actually not going to reveal until Danny's third chapter in the Storm of Swords when Masande says the thing and Danny translates it to all men must die yeah right on i also see uh Roos's leeches uh as foreshadowing stannis's leeches adding another layer of depth and credence to the whole existence of blood magic and the power of royal or highborn blood uh as well as seeing uh, groundwork and aria's continuing string of mentors and father figures that have all something or other to teach her about both death and survival ned sirio yorin jackin beric thoros sandor and the kindly man and who knows who else she'll run into in her dozens of winds of winter chapters <laughs> that's true that's you know these 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 beats are going to return kind of darker and more dramatic each time as as Arya keeps keeps acquiring mentor figures and then you know keep the the weight of the loss of the previous ones hangs so heavy on her until she's 
you know, considering again, like I was saying earlier, considering just getting rid of all of them and emotional attachment to all of them and just embracing the void at the heart of the house of black and white. And that's kind of just one pole of her arc. And then presumably we'll get the boom, boomerang back to Winterfell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so talking uh, more in the, in the theory discussion direction, Jacques and Hagar uh, changes his face. Like I said, and walks away from Arya in this chapter, and that's it for his presence in Arya's storyline to date. But that's not it for him as a character in A Song of Ice and Fire. The reason he changes his face, the reason he bothers to, is because he has other shenanigans to get up to. <laughs> and he doesn't want anyone, presumably, drawing the dots. So, what does Jockin get up to after leaving Harrenhal? He appears in Old Town, calling himself the Alchemist, manipulating young Pate to his death in the prologue to A Feast for Crows, in order to get his hands in a citadel skeleton key belonging to the Archmaesters. By the time we see him again, at the very end of that book, he has taken Pate's face and has wormed his way into Marwyn the Mage's inner circle. In A Dance with Dragons, Tyrion inadvertently lets us know what he might be after when he's talking about his dream library for dealing with dragons. (laughs) He describes the fragmentary, anonymous, blood-soaked tome Sometimes called Blood and Fire, and sometimes the Death of Dragons. The only surviving copy of which was supposedly hidden away in a locked vault beneath the Citadel. This could be part of a Faceless Man plot against Daenerys. The Death of Dragons are going to try to take down her dragons. Mm-hmm. Although I wonder whether we really have time for that. Danny has no shortage of enemies and plot beats to go through. <laughs> Is this potentially among the excised Bravosi plot lines that George referenced? And so it'll just kind of have to peter out. Or maybe Arya is going to be ordered to kill Danny. And kind of a, another question that goes hand in hand with that is, is you know, what 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 Jockin got up to in between Harrenhal and Old Town? Did he just did he just take his time going from one to the other, or did he kill Balin Greyjoy in between? Or was that another faceless man? We know it was hmm. someone in this order. The ghost of Highheart told us so. Told us so in one of her visions. I dreamt of a man without a face, waiting on a bridge that swayed and swung. On his shoulder perched a drowned crow with seaweed hanging from his wings. Euron officially takes credit for Balin's death in the Forsaken. He's the drowned crow there. And confirms that it was not by his own hand. He might have used the dragon egg he claims to have thrown into the sea in order to pay the Faceless Men. Because the Faceless Men would charge a lot for killing a king. As Littlefinger kind of inadvertently tells us in Book 1. Do you have any idea how costly they are? You could hire an army of common cell swords for half the price, and that's for a merchant. I don't dare think what they might ask for a princess. So maybe that ties into the alchemist's mission in Old Town. Are the Faceless Men anti-dragon? They're trying to use the book The Death of Dragons to kill Danny's dragons? Or do they have a dragon egg on loan from Euron, and they're <laughs> trying to grow their own? Yeah, I, I accept the interpretation that Euron throwing the dragon egg into the sea is him giving his dragon egg to the Faceless Men in exchange for them killing Balon. And it's entirely possible that Jacken was the Faceless Men who did it, but <laughs> what, what I'm getting clear on is how Jacken would be in contact with the Faceless Men when Euron is likely in Karth long before Jacken was in the Black Cells, again posing as Eurathon Nightwalker. That said, I really like the interpretation of the Faceless Men are attempting to find the Death of the Dragons Blood and Fire book that will teach them how to kill dragons or how to birth or control them. And of the two interpretations, I tend to favor the latter one as it lines up with them having a dragon egg in the first place. And this, I think there's a parallel with the Children of the Forest and their desperate attempt to defeat the First Men, as was revealed in Season 6 and likely is going to reveal, be revealed in The Winds of Winter and some of Bran's chapters. The Children of the Forest decided on an ultimate superweapon to bring about the end of the war with the First Men, namely bringing about and creating the Others. 
That experiment went real fucking bad for the children of the forest, ultimately, but it helps us understand why the Faceless Men might be interested in bringing about a dragon after the Little Ice and Fire hints that the Faceless Men may have been behind the Doom of Illyria and the death of the dragons and their riders. And in a way, you can understand the logic behind the Faceless Men wanting to bring about a weapon that would kill the largest number of people. It does tie in with their death cult ideology. That said, I will note that George was once asked whether the Faceless Men had been hired to kill Danny's dragons, and he responded, not yet. So maybe Jacken is down at the Citadel simply to get a book about killing dragons to be used in an attempt to kill Danny's dragons. And, you know, to kind of think about it a little bit more, I was thinking about this, your your, your idea about Arya being used to kill Danny, and this is kind of fringe theory that I kind of like, even though it's kind of fringe, and this idea that Arya is learning about all of these languages in Bravos, and so she's learning High Valyrian, she's learning Bravosi, she's learning all the different tongues in Essos. And who also knows lots of tongues and languages and who is sort of of the same age as Arya Stark? It's Masande of Noth. And there's a possibility that Arya might be sent by the Faceless Men to kill Masande. And that's how Arya gets back to Westeros as uh, posing as Masande wearing her face. I mean, it's, it's real fucking fringe, but it's it's kind of a cool kind of metal theory, so to speak, even though it's completely terrible and tragic. So whatever ends up being the case that George ends up getting Arya back, Arya is coming back. And whatever the direction George has taken Jack and Hagar's story, his and the overall Faceless Men's story in The Winds of Winter and A Dream of Springs, it looks to be real different from the one portrayed in The Throne Show. And I guess, I guess I'm reluctantly excited for that story. As I said before, the Faceless Men are not particularly satisfying in terms of how they fit into the world building and the overall plot structure of A Song of Ice and Fire. But Jockin, a.k.a. the Alchemist, is this interesting dangling plot thread because he was conceived so much earlier than a lot of the House of Black and White stuff and because he's just so geographically disconnected from it now. So it seems like he seems due for his own payoff, but I also can't quite imagine what that might be, especially because there's <laughs> so many other elements at work in Old Town, especially my boy Euron. So I, I am quite curious to see if he, he, he gets kind of just swallowed up in that, as I, as, as I suspect he might be. Yeah, I, I think uh, it'd be, you know, interesting if he was like mostly written out of the narrative, but then kind of just slides back in for one or two really important kills and just kind of like ties a couple of threads together with Arya when she gets back to Westeros and just, you know, I don't know, it just kind of slipping in and out like a, like a little video game assassin or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. Oh, yes, faceless men, Arya. And as we know, George is writing a lot about Arya in Bravos for the Winds of Winter. So I'm interested. I, I think the thing I'm interested in the most about in Arya's story in the Winds of Winter is whether it will be explicitly revealed whether the faceless men were behind the Doom of Illyria, whether there'll be some more explicit reveals about the faceless men, what they're doing and what their plans are for the future. And that's something to be certainly excited for as we get the Winds of Winter next week or the week thereafter. And some of those reveals might come through Old Town because, you know, whatever Jockin's up to might, might be the, the core of their plan. So it might not even happen on Arya's POV, which is going to be an interesting kind of kind of fragment effect in that regard. Yeah, that'd be so cool to have Sam be the uh, point of view for getting some of those reveals from Jack and Agar, who just slips it in just, you know, a little bit in the form of page. Sure. Oh, I've been reading this book about the Faceless Men. Did you know? Like with Gilly. Exactly. We'll get, we'll just yes. get those, those little reveals just working the same POV. Be perfect. Cannot wait. So, uh, thank you so much to everyone. Oh, sorry. I, I, I took away your, your, your big You're good, exit man. as usual. You're good. You, you, you sounded so natural going into it. Just, <laughs> just take us away, brother. Well, thank you, thank you so much to everyone for listening, and thank you so much to everyone for, for watching us on, on the stream. And we want to thank you again to Zach for joining us for two weeks in a row. You're the best man. Where can uh, people find you online? People can find me on Twitter at uh, WolfmanZach underscore. 
uh, on Instagram at WolfmanZach. And once again, if you can find me on Reddit, then you win a prize. <laughs> yeah, I'm still investigating. Gonna win that prize, I'm going to win that prize. I'm going to find you, man. You know, I'm going to send you a DM. Yeah. That's the problem. <laughs> what? Is there a prize? It's a prize. <laughs> Yeah, it was, just, it was just an absolute pleasure to have you on for these two parts for Aria 9. Uh, two really great episodes that made all the greater by your presence in them. So, as always, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere where you find our podcasts. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf. You can follow us on Twitter at notacastasoiaf or shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. You can find me at PoorQuentin on Twitter or at PoorQuentin.com. And you can find me at Brennan Beefish on Twitter, Brennan Beefish on Reddit, and my website is warsandpoliticsviceandfire.wordpress.com. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon. Red Relu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers. Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Marybolt, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets. Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Neris, and Lady of Jameson. Lady Brit, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal. Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood. Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill. Sir Way, of course. Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore. Lord Mark Cummington, heir to Griffin's Roost. Lord Sam Kay, Sir Michael Mertens. Wisdom Benjicott, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bull and the Morgan. Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping. Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies. Septon Merrifull, Head of Hair. Lady Silverwing, Caboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks, and Castle Crimson Light. Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wilder of Lady Forlorn. Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands. Ryan Noy, Forger of the Mighty Hammer and Keeper of the King's Anvil. Lord Young of the Ghost Woods. Lady Mira Reed, Wilder of Dark Sister, Slayer of Tinfoil. Lady of Rainy Afternoons, Sir Will of the Anarcho-Syndicalist Commune. Lord Clay, and our newest High Lord. Lord DK, former window washer of the Winterfell Glass Gardens. So thank you so much as always to our high lords and ladies, and welcome to Lord DK, former window washer of the Winterfell Glass Gardens. Yeah, I love that title, man. That's a, that's a great, great title, and welcome to the to the high lords, and thank you, of course, to all of you high lords and ladies for, for supporting us every month on Patreon. So join us next week as Drumroll Priest, part one of A Clash of Kings, Daenerys 4. Fuck yeah! In which Danny hangs out in the creepy opium den known as the House of the Undying. Danny, got some advice for you. If your friends want you to take drugs, they're not really your friends. Man, I picked the wrong chapters. That's right up my alley. <laughs> you missed you missed it by one week, but yeah, don't don't worry, don't worry, folks. Just just gonna bring the the, the crossed arm, you know, dare mom uh, approach to this to this chapter. Don't worry, we will keep you safe. But yes, obviously. The House of the Undying is one of the, the unquestioned peaks of the entire series. What can we say about it? We're going to find out. There's lots to say. So can't wait for that. Cannot wait. So thank you so much for listening or watching. Thank you again for Zach for joining us. And we'll see you guys next week.